Hey folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and this is the show where we build an entire campaign and we do it from scratch. This season, our campaign is for the Fallout role-playing game. And for those who are new to the program, if you need a copy of the rules, head over to your local game shop or bookstore. Or if those aren't an option, hit up the Modifius Entertainment website at M-O-D-I-P-H-I-U-S dot net to get yourself a copy. As is our custom, before we start this week's build, we need to recap what we built last week. We began with the group exceptionally annoyed at having been used by Tucker Malloy, and they decided to head back to Maplewood to seek a measure of revenge. As they were leaving to head that way, they met Mackenzie Cook, who showed them a badge indicating she belongs to the Missouri State Patrol. They had a decent length conversation, during which she proposed that both sides exchange information. She provided the group with a couple of nuggets about some of the individuals they've been involved with lately and promised she'd look into a few of their other issues. She just asked that the group feed her information on the people and things they run into over the course of their investigations. They parted ways and the group continued on. Reaching the Malloy house, they discovered that in the time it took them to get back to Diamond Pass, speak with Victor, then return to Maplewood, Malloy had apparently cleaned out his home and removed his security from the premises. They searched the house anyway and found Riggins, the Mr. Handy that brought them to the house in the first place, splayed out on the basement floor. He was able to speak with them, but couldn't move or do anything else. Mid-conversation, Tucker Malloy's voice took over and began a countdown. Now, the group either managed to get out of the house before it imploded or got stuck inside as it did and took some damage. Either way, they ultimately found themselves rescued by Melanie Zombrowski and some of her people. She informed the group she'd been on her way to have her own discussion with Malloy, but since he was gone and the group was in trouble, she decided to help them out. She also suggested that the group might make themselves scarce since they'd been seen going into the house before the explosion and there might be those who have questions. So the group decided to follow up on something Mackenzie Cook had told them, which is that Tucker Malloy and Jackson Denman were partners in a company called Mass Logistics. The group made their way to the factory and gained access to what they quickly discovered is a synth manufacturing facility. And we ended the build just as they started taking all of that in. So as we pick up the build this week, we need to take a half step back. And we need to do that because I left a couple of things unclear when we got to the factory last week. The first thing we need to do is figure out what time of day it is as the group's dealing with the situation. Going over some quick math, we know it was sometime in the morning when they headed to Maplewood for their initial meeting. We can say with some certainty that they spent a couple hours working through the sources and solving their mystery, then another half hour dealing with the aftermath. Figure in a couple of hours back to Diamond Pass, half an hour or so meeting with Victor, then we actually get to last week's numbers. But with five hours already accounted for, even if it was, say, 8 or 9 a.m., we're already at mid-afternoon. Figure in a half hour to 45 minutes for the conversation with Cook, plus the two-hour walk back to Maplewood, and we're now looking at something close to 5 p.m. or later, if everything started later. We'll say it was another half hour searching the house, plus about an hour, roughly, for the post-explosion, though if they fought the synth, it's probably closer to 20 minutes. The meeting with Zombrowski was another 10 to 15. Anyway, we can very safely say it's nighttime when they go to check out Mass Logistics. And that does actually mean something. A couple of somethings, actually. First off, it makes it easier for them to get around the perimeter of the property without being seen. Plus, they can take out the security a bit easier since they won't have light of sight on each other. 
they'll have to react to noise. And since there's almost always some sort of noises going on, it might be hard to filter out the background noises to actually hear what's going on. The other thing we need to figure out is what's going on inside the factory. Now, knowing it's nighttime affects how we plan this out, since it would be safe to argue that during the day, there'd most likely be humans on site. How many is something we're going to work out as we set this up. At night, however, I think it's safe to say that the number of humans on site is minimal, if there are any there at all. Now, I mentioned last week that Mass Logistics is an assembly line factory, so let's envision it like we would from all the footage we've seen over the years about assembly lines. Stations for each part of the synth, from body to limbs to head to internals. So as the group looks up, they'll see hundreds of synths hanging on the line in various stages. And the line would be at a normal human level so that human workers could assemble them. Or at least it'll be assumed humans are assembling them. FYI, that's not necessarily true, but it isn't part of things at this point, so we're not really going to get into it. Since we've got the group coming in at night, there won't be a lot of lights on in here. I mean, sure, there will be a few since there will be security in the building, but it won't be lit up like it would during the day. That's going to leave some shadows around the interior, and while those could be helpful to the group as they sneak their way around, it could also cause issues with seeing security. Stay tuned. So what exactly does this interior look like? This is another one of those locations I want to leave specifically vague so that you've got room to flavor it yourself. I did mention that the building is two stories, and since we've already noted that production is on the ground floor, we can safely assume offices would be on the second floor. I also envision that second floor as being mostly walkways with the offices against the walls, thus allowing for supervisors to look out over the floor without actually having to go down there. Insofar as how things are specifically laid out on the production floor, well, I'll leave that to you and I'll work it out for my group when I get them to this point. After all, we need to actually get some adventure written out, so let's get to it. The group's probably going to want to be sneaky as they make their way up the ladder from the pipe below, so let's use that agility plus sneak check difficulty 2. To give you the 411 on this, not getting two successes is not the end of the world. It just means they'll make a little more noise than they'd like. A complication, on the other hand, is not good, as they manage to fall, slip, or somehow manage to lose their weapon, and there'll be some clanging and sliding across the floor, and that is definitely going to make a lot of noise. So, if that happens, the group will probably be holding their collective breaths to see what happens next. Now, regardless of whether or not they actually made the check, their first point of business should be to find a hidey hole whilst they figure out what security looks like. We'll say there's a dark spot about 25 or so feet behind them with some computer banks they can use as cover. Same sneak check and bank any complications that come up because they'll come into play momentarily. Once they get into their hiding position, describe what the production floor looks like from where they are. I'm going with an open concept and as open as possible, though we know that supports needed for the conveyor system will block some of the view. One thing they won't block is security coming by on a pass. There will definitely be a sentry bot on patrol, and the stats for that are on page 364. Now, if anyone in the group had a complication on one of the two sneak rolls, there will also be a Mr. Gutsy alongside, and those stats are on pages 361 and 362. If there were complications on both rolls, add another Mr. Gutsy. Also, if there were no complications, the sentry bot is just on general patrol, so it'll pass by the area the group's hiding in, 
but isn't really doing a search. If they failed one, any robot there will be searching actively, so roll their searches accordingly. And since they're actively searching, reduce whatever difficulty you give them by one. For me, the base for a search would be a difficulty three. With the group hiding, I'd crank it up to four. But if it's an active search, we'll drop it back down to three. You still with me? Good. One more thing to consider here. If the group gets caught, they will be attacked. This might be a difficult fight, but compared to what they faced recently, it might not be. What will make it difficult is that once gunfire has commenced, another Mr. Gutsy will enter the fray every two rounds, and another sentry bot will enter every third round. For those keeping track at home, there are a total of four sentry bots and six Mr. Gutsies handling security inside the factory. So if the group hits these numbers in a single fight, they've eliminated the security. However, that's not all that's there, and we will get to that momentarily. If your group makes their sneak rolls, or at least doesn't have any complications, the sentry bot will pass, and they'll be able to listen to get a rough estimate of where the other robots in the factory are. One thing that we didn't really hit when we kicked off this episode is what exactly the group is looking for. I did that intentionally because, if we're being honest, the group could be looking for anything. I can think of a couple of things my group will be looking for, starting with any and all data they can find out about the company and who they're building all the synths for. They might want to grab a synth part or two, especially some of the computer components, as they might be able to trace them back to the manufacturer or pull other information from them. I'm sure there's at least one or two other things, but they're not coming to mind right now. I'm sure I'll get hit with them when I run this. The basic idea here is to let the group dictate where they're going inside the factory and what they're looking for. Ultimately, they can do pretty much whatever they want. The problem for them is that we're going to up the difficulty for the sneak checks as we go along. So the longer they're in the building, the harder it will be for them to continue sneaking. For example, if the group just wants to make their way to the second floor to search offices, they'll make a sneak check with a difficulty of three. If they want to search for one synth part, then head to the office, it's a difficulty of four. Another part increases it to five, and any additional stops after that will increase the complication range by one. So for example, if the group wants to get a synth head, a computer component, a circuit board, and then head to the office, there are four sneak checks involved at difficulty three, four, five, and then five with a complication range of 19 to 20. Hopefully that makes sense. Getting caught on the production floor leads to the same situation they would have run into had they had complications on the initial sneak checks. But there's a flip side to this. If by chance the group took out all of the security earlier, thanks to failing sneak checks and being attacked, they won't get caught by security on the floor. In fact, you can drop the difficulty for sneaking to two and not raise it for additional floor checks. Now, regardless of whether or not they took care of the floor security, moving up to the second floor will be a three at minimum, and there's another reason for that. There are three, three-shot laser turrets covering the walkway up here, and they're equal distance apart. So if they fail a sneak check in any way, shape, or form, the closest one will start shooting. For my game, I've got a turret covering a pair of offices. Of course, if a group member happens to move past the second office for a single turret, the next turret in line will also start targeting at the group. Hopefully they think of that, but keep this idea handy in case they don't. And the stats for these are on page 381. If by chance the group didn't deal with any of the security on the floor, a turret cranking up will draw their attention. 
The Mr. Gutsies will make their way up the stairs and engage directly while the sentry bots will fire from the floor. This encounter will be way more difficult since moving around will be a bit harder until or unless someone thinks to open an office door. If they do that, they can set up a bit of a bottleneck, though I'd note that each office has an oval window that can be shot out, so there's still a bit of danger for the group in this case. Regardless, once everything's been dealt with, they can start checking offices and we'll go around the horn starting at the first one. It needs to be noted that there aren't any nameplates on these doors, so they'll have no idea whose office they're in until or unless they use a computer terminal. Sorry, this isn't quite like the video game. The first office is sparsely decorated with a few file cabinets in the room, a fake potted plant, and a simple metal desk. It's got a cheap alarm clock, a fan, and a computer sitting on it. There's no password protection on it, so getting into it is easy. No check required. It's the staff computer, and it has folders for the staff schedule, the factory handbook, and a set of reminders from the supervision staff. I'm not going to get into the details on these, as my group's probably not going to be overly interested in them. If you've got the kind of group that enjoys this sort of minutia, work it up. One thing that will be interesting is that there are only a dozen names on the staff schedule, so that should be a clue as to who is assembling the synths. Tell you what, since we haven't tossed the group a bone in a while, let's drop 25 caps into the desk drawer and an addictol chem on the desk itself. The next office looks a little more used. It has the same furniture as the previous one, but there are what appear to be family pictures on the desk and there's a radio on one of the cabinets. The computer isn't password protected, so again, they can get in pretty easily. This is the office of Jackie Dermott, who is the head of Human Resources. She's got the same three files that the employee computer had, plus one for incoming mail and another for notes on each of the employees. Again, not going to get into details here because what the group is going to find isn't really relevant to what they're looking for. Make the incoming emails your generic, how do I address this situation kind of emails. And if you've ever worked in or near human resources, you know what I'm talking about. There is nothing of value in this office, so let's move on. Office 3 will immediately stand out as different because the door is locked. Picking it is perception plus lockpick, difficulty 2. Once inside, they notice that this office is packed with electronics, including multiple computer stations. The environment in here is almost sterile, and I say almost because the smell of cigar smoke tells them it's anything but sterile. All of the computer terminals give the same information, so we're only going to do this once. This is the office of the lead technician, and the files in his computer link to that specific job. He's got program files for the head assembly synths, the leg assembly synths, you get the idea. He's also got files for the actual manufacturing of the synth body parts, which doesn't appear to take place on this site, though it doesn't say where they come from. These files are technical diagrams detailing what wires and circuits are placed where and what the optimal assembly protocols should be. Yeah, all right, it's obvious I'm not a tech guy. Use your knowledge of assembly if you've got it and clean this up for your group. I will say that the tech specs come from iRobotics, so if your group's had the initial run-in with them, they'll be familiar. If they haven't, this will be the first time they've heard the name. It's no big deal there either because we won't be using the same site for the next encounter with them. There will be enough copies of Tesla Science for each member of the group to have a copy, and you can roll on the chart on page 177 for random additions or just pick out the one you want to use. 
Office 4 is also locked, though this lock is a bit more complicated. Perception plus lock pick difficulty 3, and a complication means they've broken off a pick in the lock and will have to break the door down to get in or break the window and climb in. Either way, it's going to make noise, and if they didn't deal with the security on the floor, well, you know. This office is set up a lot like the first two were, though this one adds a couch under the window. There is a box of cigars on the desk along with an ashtray, and it's got a cigar stub in it along with some ash. This computer is password protected, so they'll need to hack their way in. Intelligence plus science, difficulty two. This is the office of the project manager, and they've got the same files as the employee computer along with the tech specs from the lead technician. He's also got a file for mail, so they'll probably want to check that one out. Most of the messages mean nothing, but there's one from Tucker Malloy they'll find interesting. It's dated two days ago and reads, Make sure the security after hours is beefed up. Rumor has it Valen screwed up his job and alerted Victor's group to what's going on. And don't make the same mistakes your predecessor made or you'll have the same problem he did. Understood? There's no reply to this, so the group won't know whether it was responded to or not. If they search the drawers, toss them another 20 caps for the effort. Door 5 is where things start getting interesting. It's a card swipe door, so the group is at a crossroads. Do they go off looking for a card to swipe, or do they take their chances at hacking it? It'll be an intelligence plus science difficulty for to do so, and failure will set off the alarms. If they've dealt with all the security, they probably won't care about that, but it is going to cause them some issues in a bit. The window to this office is also double-thick reinforced glass, so they're really going to have to work to break it. It'll take several minutes, but they will eventually be able to get enough of it broken out to get somebody in there, and that somebody can get the door open from the inside to let everyone in. Now, this office is even nicer than the last one, with a table in front of the couch that has a very nice drinking glass on it and a bottle of booze. There are multiple boxes of cigars in here, as well as a carton of cigarettes. That also means there are several ashtrays in here, including one on the desk. No personal pictures on the desk, but there is a loaded 10mm pistol with a full magazine, so that'll get the group thinking. This computer requires an intelligence plus science difficulty for to hack, and they'll be disappointed to find that all of the files have been uploaded and deleted. They do know that the computer belongs to the head of the facility, so maybe this is all normal? Eh, probably not. The final office is a virtual fortress. No window on this one, and the card swipe requires intelligence plus science difficulty 5 to break. And this door cannot be kicked in. If they need to break it down, it's going to require explosives. They'll be surprised to note that the office only contains a desk with a computer, which seems strange considering the level of security on it. The computer also requires an intelligence plus science difficulty 5 to hack. And when they get in, they realize why there's so much security. This is the office of Tucker Malloy, or at least it's his computer terminal. It doesn't bother with a ton of files. It's strictly a mail computer, and the group picks up several that seem to fit their needs. I'll list them out and feel free to reword them to better suit your play style. From two weeks ago, there's an outgoing message to Jackson Denman. I don't understand why you keep toying with these fools. Victor's not somebody you mess with and hope to get away scot-free. He's eventually going to get a team that's worth its salt, and he'll sick them on us. I'm not worried about that so much. We just don't need the exposure. 
Denman responded the following day. I am not, as you say, toying with them. Victor and his lot are nothing more than petty criminals with delusions of grandeur. That silly Markowski woman found out about Owens and has started sniffing around. If she decides to let Victor into her plans, they might just get lucky and get closer than I'm comfortable with. Deal with this before it gets worse. From three days ago, Malloy to one S. Owens. You need to change your tactics with Markowski. She's not listening to reason, so stop talking. Scope things out, come up with a plan, and execute said plan. I don't want to hear another word from you until it's done. Yesterday, Malloy sent a message to Denman. Owens messed up again and that group of victors was there. They're getting closer to figuring things out. Let Longsworth know we need to move the delivery date. And in the meantime, I'm going to see if I can't slow them down a little bit. Last up is a message that came in about an hour ago from Longsworth. You can delay your delivery, Tucker, but I expect an extra dozen for the trouble. Say what you want, but I know why you're doing this. I can assure you, sir, that you don't want to try to play me. That's it, but they do manage to get a couple things they can use moving forward. With their search done, they should be thinking about getting out of there. And if they didn't set off the alarm, they can head back to the sewer entrance and skedaddle on out of there. However, if they set off the alarm, they're going to be met by the next line of security in the form of an assaultron. There's only one, fortunately for the group, and the stats are on page 357. Once they've dealt with that, they can get away. Now, before we get to the next scene, we need to discuss what happens if the group decides to make entry during the day. They can use the same entrance, but it'll be a fight the entire time they're in there. There'll be three dozen synths on the production floor working on synths, and they'll alert security as soon as the group gets there. We'll use half the nighttime security, but we'll add in a couple of the Garson tactical guys we've used in the past. You know, the ones that use the Brotherhood night stats on page 383. We'll have one for each group member. Additionally, there will be someone in each of the offices except Malloy's and they'll each be armed with laser pistols, so be aware of that as well. Use the Institute Scientist stats on page 394 and 395 for that. They'll also have to work quickly since if they're in there for longer than three or four minutes, and they probably will be, another batch of security officers, all Garson, will enter. And this time it'll be double the number of party members. Yes, we're making this tough, but if the group is silly enough to try this during the day, they have to expect a ton of resistance. Anyway, once they've gotten their information, we can safely assume they'll head back to the third base saloon to bring Victor up to speed. Along the way, and you can decide exactly how long along the way this is, they hear barking coming from their right side, which would be the south. When they turn to look, they see a rather familiar ink black dog heading their way. It's Caesar, and he immediately stops in the middle of the group and sits so that he can be petted. Mackenzie Cook strides in a moment or two afterwards. She notes that she was on her way to Diamond Pass and she'd picked up something she thought the group might be interested in. Now, we remember from last week's build that the deal with Cook is basically tit for tat. So the group needs to decide how much information from the last scene or two they want to share. They don't necessarily need to share it all, but Cook's going to know or at least suspect if they don't tell her everything. Once they've told her something usable, she'll tell them that one of her sources told her about some deal going down two nights from tonight. The source didn't say what was being sold or how much, but she found it interesting that Longsworth's name came up as the person receiving the product. 
The meet set for the old St. Louis County Courthouse in Clayton, and she was given the impression that the security for this will be heavy. If the group asks her how much of this she believes, she'll let them know that this particular source has been right the majority of the time, and even when all the information given hasn't been solid, enough of it has been to make things not a complete loss. She apologizes for not being able to offer them anything more than that, but she does promise to look deeper into whatever they told her. She gives her goodbyes, and she and Caesar head off to the north. Upon arrival at the third base saloon, Victor informs them that he's got a bit of information for them concerning their run-in with the synths outside the brewery. Not sure what order the information exchange is going to go in, but I'll give Victor's first, then his reaction to the group. He lets them know that the facility they found the synths in is owned by a Sylvester Owens. Victor's not 100% sure who Owens is, but he seems to remember somebody by that name working for Malloy several years back. He hasn't been able to dig up anything else relevant about Owens, but he's still got feelers out there. When the group lays out everything they've got, his first comment will be about the Owens mail on Malloy's computer. He'll be especially concerned with Owens and Malloy being in the synth business. He'll remind the group again that Malloy is as ruthless as they come, so if he's dealing in synths, things are not going to be good for everybody else in the city. He's not overly surprised to hear that Longsworth is getting a delivery of synths. They all already knew he was using them, or at least suspected it, so having it confirmed doesn't really change much. The fact that he's apparently buying them from Malloy, on the other hand, does change the game just a bit. What he's uncertain about is whether or not Longsworth's involved in more business with Malloy, or if this is his way of beefing up his army independent of him. He strongly suggests the group make that particular meeting, and since it'll take them a lot of time to get there, he'll give them the location of a safe house in Clayton they can use. Belongs to an associate of his, but he'll get word to him to expect the group within the next 24 hours. And he tells them they should get there early so they can do good recon on the building in order to best decide how they want to handle things. He'll also offer up a couple of toys for the group to use, should they ask about them. I'll leave it to you to decide what those toys are. Could be a minigun, could be a flamer, could be whatever you want. Victor's not overly concerned about the other messages, though he does say he'll try to figure out who's building the parts Malloy's using to build the synths. His hope is if they can sweat someone down there, they might get some actionable information. He's got nothing else for them at this time, so they're free to head home or to wherever they hang out to relax. And that's where we're going to end today's build. Next week, we'll pick up with sending the group to Clayton and checking out The Big Exchange. In the meanwhile, check out our other podcast, Role-Playing History. This week, we begin our look at the best modules, published adventures of all time, according to our listeners. There's a lot of old-school D&D adventures on the list, so if you're an OG D&D player, this is a must-listen. Role-Playing History is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgingandproductions.net. All Fallout role-playing game materials utilized on this show are the trademarked and copyrighted properties of Modifius Entertainment through their license with Bethesda Games and are utilized on this show for entertainment purposes only. If you're interested in checking out this game or any of the other fine products they produce, check out their website, modiphius.net. 
The music we use on this show comes from Pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music needs. Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along is a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash Bad GM Prod, on Twitter at Bad GMP, YouTube and Tumblr, Bad GM Productions. You can email us, badgmproductions at gmail.com, and online the website is badgmproductions.net. Next week, we head to the big exchange in Clayton, and maybe, just maybe, our group will finally start getting more answers than questions. Oh, and I almost forgot to mention... I've got a special episode that's going to drop tomorrow because I finally figured out how I'm going to get my group back on track with what we've been writing. So we've got a new episode next week. We've got a new special episode tomorrow. That'll be Saturday if you're listening to this on Friday Drop Day. So make sure you tune in and catch them. But that's tomorrow and next week. Until then, I'm the bad GM Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the game table.